I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the Thoughts on Money podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here in Newport Beach, California, where it's been a little bit dreary, a little bit rainy, and I'm with uh, one of my good friends and colleagues, none other than Mr. Dea Pranas. Hello, everybody. I invited Dea Pranas here specifically because Dea Pranas is smarter than me. So uh, uh, That's not true. It is true. Uh, I wrote an article recently where I talked about the importance of teams and, and kind of leaning into folks that uh, have some knowledge that maybe you don't have yourself. Now, I went out on a limb this week. I wrote an article called Peaking Interest, and I was uh, hesitating to write this article because I love that Thoughts on Money presents things in a very palatable way. And I try to stay away from subjects that feel esoteric. But uh, I mentor a couple advisors here at the Bonds Group, and I've been telling them every morning kind of the first financial tidbit or news that I check is where treasury rates are. If you don't know what that means, let me give you a little background. The government borrows money. You can lend your money to the government, and they will pay you back an agreed-upon interest rate. And at the end of that borrowing term, they'll give you back your principal, what you lent them. Now you have options. You can lend them money for three months. You can lend them money for 30 years and everything in between. Our whole financial world revolves around where those interest rates are. So we have lots of conversation is right now, what would the government pay you in an interest rate if you lent them money for 10 years or two years or 30 years? Those figures and the relationship they have with one another, what you will hear is called the yield curve. It matters a lot in finance. So I'm going to start out with just this one little tidbit. If you're listening to this and you're like, oh, no, Trevor, this is going to go over my head. And why in the world would I be interested in this? Yesterday, I just did a quick search and I looked at where the 30-year mortgage is. A lot of people listening to this probably have mortgages or have kids that are going to buy first homes and things like that you've seen an absolute spike in the 30-year mortgage. I don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere in the range of 4.5% right now. That is very abnormal if you look over the last 24 to 36 months, three or four years. Why is that happening? Well, it's happening because what we're going to talk about today. All these interest rates are intra-related, and we understand that there is a ripple effect. So what I did this week, me and Day are going to talk through some of these questions, but I sent David Bonson five questions that I had. And what I thought is this is a way of peeling back the curtain and letting you look at what some of the internal conversations look like here at the Bonson Group and what a professional might be interested in or the types of questions that they might want to ask. So are you ready to go through these questions, Mr. Deopernos? Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Uh, with the background I gave, is there anything that you would add to what I said? I think that is very clearly articulated, and I think that sounds intuitive. I like how you brought it home to the 30-year. At the end of the day, yield curve and the shape of the yield curve and level, they may seem like a term premium, uh, yield pickup. These may seem like, uh, like you said, to use your word, esoteric concepts, but they greatly affect the real-world economy. And that's just one of the ways they do that is through uh, the borrowing rate on mortgages. And what I would expect from a listener to this podcast is that they would have a pen and paper next to them and some of the vocabulary that they don't know that they would write it down. Because I will admit that there are some of these areas, even in the role that I'm in, that can be a little bit murky. 
but what I've encouraged people is that if you get some of that base language down, one of the greatest things that you can do is just how to learn how to ask the right questions. And if you learn how to write, ask the right questions, you know what threads to pull on. So where my curiosities led me is, you know, you and I were actually sitting in an office together listening to somebody who gets high praise in, in the bond market and was just talking about that if, if you want to understand where the Federal Reserve, the bank that lends to other banks, the central bank, where they're going to set their rates, what they lend to banks overnight, you can really just look at what the government lends money on a two-year period. We call that the two-year treasury. So one of the things I sent to David is that should the Fed funds rate in the two-year treasury always walk in lockstep? And if so, why did they recently disconnect? What say you? <laughs> and, I, and I think that's a, that's a good question to start. I think it's probably one of the more complex ones to start with, but I do think it's a good one. And you mentioned in your question to David, you essentially mentioned how did the Fed get so behind the curve? That's been a phrase that's been repeated a good amount whenever I... I didn't even intentionally mean to use that. So is that like oh, okay, a normal okay. terminology? Well, you, you, it's generally when I hear it discussed in the media, it's relating to inflation, essentially. Got it. That, uh, you know, the Fed's dual mandate is to promote stable prices and maximize employment. And if we don't have stable prices, namely if uh, inflation uh, keeps increasing, then and the Fed's not taking action, are they behind the curve? So for our listeners, we would say that this central bank now will intervene based on two things that are warning signs for them. You said one of those warning signs is employment. So if unemployment's high, they might lower their rates, right? Or if inflation gets out of hand, they might raise those rates. So they kind of have this lever that they pull uh, that is a level of intervention in free markets to try to control those two mandates that you've laid out. Exactly. And their main policy tool in order to do that is the federal funds rate. They have other policy tools, but that's the primary weapon they have. Behind the curve, when I hear it mentioned, that's usually what I hear it in terms to. But it also applies in this scenario, like you mentioned. The two-year federal funds rate, as, uh, as Trevor described, it's the overnight rate that banks lend to other banks. And based on that rate, it tends to affect other rates in the, in the economy. Like if I'm going to go get a mortgage then anybody who wants to lend to me for my mortgage is turning their eyes and looking what uh, these different rates across the yield curve are to kind of set what they think is a fair mortgage rate. Is that an okay way to put it? Yes. And it's, it's important to realize that these things don't move in lockstep with each other. And where that mortgage rate is set, it is set by the market. So uh, it's difficult to predict exactly where that mortgage rate is going to be based on what's happening on the short end of the curve uh, at the federal funds level. Uh, but yeah, that, that's correct. It, it does affect the cost of borrowing everywhere. Yeah. So we see how market participants work is that they try to predict, right? They try to get ahead of what might happen, quote unquote. So we can see if we look at longer time periods, we see really strong correlations maybe between mortgage rates and a 10-year treasury. But in the short term, we see people kind of uh, jibbing and jiving different ways to kind of get two steps ahead of what is going to happen. Exactly. And that's the main reason why you see that behind the curve a scenario. And David had mentioned that, look, the Federal Reserve for a while has been guiding what it's going to do with the federal funds rate. It's going to raise at some point in time. And that two years gotten ahead of that. It's got ahead of that primarily because what you said, because if imagine if you're somebody that holds a, a one-year or a two-year T-bill uh, type instrument, and this is before the Fed starts raising. So let's say we're at zero at this point, and the Fed hasn't mentioned anything about raising rates, and you're getting something pretty close to zero. And then the Fed, the Fed comes out and says, look, we're going to raise 
whatever the amount is, seven times or eight times by the end of uh, 2022, and you know that's going to happen, that's going to make the T-bill that you own less attractive. So why are you going to make zero when you could just wait uh, for the federal funds rate to, uh, let's say, climb a little and then put your money to work in a money market or something like that, that that tends to be linked to the federal funds rate and uh, make more interest on. So there's a bit of a substitution that happens where uh, instruments automatically become less attractive uh, or some of the short-term instruments become less attractive when the Fed telegraphs that it's going to raise those rates. But we could solve for that if we just knew the future, couldn't we? <laughs> oh, do we know the future? I mean, we, that's all we need. We need to... <laughs> so David mentions in his answer of this question, kind of this chicken or egg problem, and I'll pose the question maybe a little bit differently to you. Does the way the Federal Reserve sets policy, do they take their cues from the market or does the market take their cues from the Federal Reserve? I think that there is that chicken or the egg problem. And um, in most cases, I think that the Fed does uh, do its best to telegraph its actions. And in doing so, it's aimed- Can I ask why? Sh- why do they telegraph their actions? The main reason for telegraphing their actions, and I think this started to become more of an issue after the taper tantrum, the whole point behind telegraphing their actions, they don't want to surprise markets. They don't want to surprise markets and create distressed selling, which then might or may not metastasize the overall economy. So they want to avoid that risk. Our Federal Reserve has become more intentional about avoiding recessions than the Federal Reserve of the past. So it's a more controlling Fed that wants to do its best to make sure that we don't get in any trouble. So So if I'm going to discipline my son, I will often tell him, if you do this again, this is a first warning, you're going to get a consequence. Hey, this is a second warning. If you do this again, you're going to get a consequence because I don't want to surprise him with that consequence. So it's kind of like they're giving the warning signs. It it almost like you're saying is that they don't want to be the initiator of a recession because of a decision that they made that surprised market participants. I think that's a a very intuitive way of putting it. It's setting those expectations and massaging them into the broader market sentiment instead of smacking the market upside the head with it. They're very, very careful about the words they, they, they choose. The Fed watching has gotten to such a level where even the, whenever uh, you know a Federal Reserve chairman comes out, whether it be Powell or anybody else, they're, they're analyzing their body language. They're analyzing what, what preposition they use and where. So the do whole they thing, look left? Do they yeah, look do they right? Look so the whole thing's gotten you know, absolutely ridiculous in my opinion. But it just goes to show you how closely the market is observing you know, what comes out of the Federal Reserve communications. So what we can now kind of conclude it for our listeners is that, hey, if, if some of this language is foreign to you, here's what we do know. There's a, a central bank that sets particular policies that is like throwing a stone into the lake, that there will be ripple effects and impacts. And knowing that there's ripple effects and impacts, they are very precise that we're going to pick up the rock now. We're going to throw the rock. We're going to throw it this far. This is what the impact's going to be so that the market participants can kind of prepare themselves. I, I guess my next question then is when they have these prepared comments or as they did recently, they raised that federal funds rate by 25 basis points, a quarter of a percent. When they did that, it's a weird way to ask it, but uh, Jerome Powell, the, the head of the Federal Reserve, does he do that and then go back and kind of look at his computer or TV screen and kind of see what's going to happen? Like, is is he taking cues from the market? Is he really curious to see how the market responds to their policy action? Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, I, I absolutely think they, they, they observe that very closely. And it's one of the reasons why they do it is to get a reaction out of the market. 
to give you an example, a hypothetical example, let's say they believe that uh, lending is excessive, we're at the tail end of a bull market, uh, things are getting a bit frothy, and they want to try to calm markets down to not create some sort of bubble type of situation. Uh, what they could come out and say is something that sounds hawkish or sounds monetarily speaking restrictive, like we're going to raise rates, we're going to take money out of the economy, uh, what have you. And they would expect if they said that, for markets to quell that level of optimism that's currently being experienced. Let's say they go back to their desk and they see markets go up after that. Then what do they think to themselves? Oh, we should be more restrictive in our policy. So then they go back out with their communications and then they get even more aggressive. They're not trying to directionally get the market to do a certain thing, but they sort of are. They want to see some dampen of optimism when things are getting too hot and the reverse when things are, are uh, obviously uh, getting too pessimistic. Things are too pessimistic out there. They want to tell the public that they are lowering the cost of money. There's going to be more credit flowing and uh, hopefully get uh, optimism uh, back to market participants and get things moving in the right direction. So is it fair to say that the central bank is doing everything they can to not surprise market participants, but still market participants can often surprise the central bank? I think that's a great way to put it. And we've, and we've seen that. And I think that I was very surprised. And I'm, and I'm sure that Powell was surprised as well when he came out a couple of weeks ago and said that they were going to be uh, restrictive. And it, it was more than a lot of market participants would have thought. Yet the market went up so much, uh, in fact, that uh, Powell had to come back a couple of days later and say, hey, we're going to be even more aggressive at our next meeting. We might even raise uh, 50 basis points if, if we think that, uh, you know, inflation has gotten too high. So, so uh, yes, I think that oftentimes the market movement will surprise the Fed and they adjust their communications in order to achieve the, the result they want to achieve. What's more impactful, what you say you're going to do or doing what you said you were going to do? If the Fed has credibility, I think saying it is enough, uh, saying it enough and the market will react. If you have a Federal Reserve that doesn't have credibility or is not believed, mm then um, saying it uh, will have less of an impact and they actually have to do it. So I'm using the term central bank and Federal Reserve synonymously Mm. for our listeners. So sometimes the central bank to me is just like it's an an easier term to kind of uh, palette. So with the the central bank, uh, are they credible? I think – Is this group? Is this group of uh, professionals, are are they credible to the market from the market's perspective? I think the Fed has lost a bit of credibility – and what I mean by that is, let's say they come out and they, uh, like Powell said, they come out and they're going to raise seven times by the end of 2022. Does the market really believe they're going to do that, especially if we have some sharp sell-off or some uh, global economic contraction? No, I don't think the the market believes they're going to do that at all. I think that if they see something happening uh, unfavorably in labor markets or uh, some sort of growth in the economy, I think they'll back off uh, those rate hikes, which means that it's credible – Kind of. It's credible if things are okay. So I think the the market fully believes that if there is a level of distress, the Fed is going to take their foot off the gas, which means that you can't believe that they are always going to do what they say they're going to do. So if you're listening to this podcast right now and your question is, are we talking about finance or psychology? The answer is yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, yes. I, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, all of the above. So it's kind of interesting, this, I I don't want to call it a game, but this idea of the language, the posturing, all of this stuff to, again, I love that you're using this word of telegraphing, to kind of 
kind of see what reaction they're going to get so that they understand kind of uh, what is the next move. I don't know why this interests me so much, but uh, it I find this particular part fascinating. Intuitively, you would think if I, Trevor, is going to lend the government money for three months, I'm probably going to get a lower interest rate than if I'm willing to fully commit to letting him borrow money for 30 years. Well, why would that be? Can a lot change over 30 years? Absolutely. I, I really don't know what the future has in store. So there's this intuitive assumption that if I lend money for longer, which we might call duration or whatever you want to call, that I, I should expect a, a higher interest rate. So here's the fascinating part. That's not true right now. So walk us through that where we would think that there is this yield curve, meaning that it's that longer-term borrowing is curving up with a higher interest rate. So what does it mean when all of a sudden the the five-year, letting the, the, the government borrow money for five years, pays a higher interest rate than 30 years? Mm. How should a listener that doesn't have a degree in economics, that doesn't read financial literature every day, how do they wrap their mind around that? It, and I, I like the way you put it. It is intuitive. It, you don't have to have a degree in economics to understand it. It is very intuitive. But, uh, you know, obviously a lot can be obfuscated through uh, the, the financial jargon and so on. And you started off this conversation really talking about the importance of the yield curve and, you know, why that's important really. And you're talking about one of the main reasons why it's important is because it kind of tells you what the bond market or market participants are thinking about the future, the future of the economy, the future of markets, and so on. And when you have a situation where longer-term maturities, where you're willing to tie your, up, tie your money up for uh, a very long term, and you're getting around the same amount of interest as you would if you tied your money up for a shorter term, it seems counterintuitive because you would expect that there's a little bit more risk tying your money up for long term. So you should expect a little bit uh, more term premium, as we say in the in the industry. So the situation that unfolds, why that ha- that's happened is is because there is a lack of optimism about the current state of affairs in the economy. If you think about it, if let, let's let's paint a scenario where there's a lot of optimism in the air about investment opportunities, about where the economy is headed. Uh, you know, let's say we're we're back in the roaring twenties or something. Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to tie your money up for thirty years. You're probably going to take that money. And you're going to put it to work in a business, or you're going to put it to work in uh, in some stocks that uh, have some opportunity to compound their capital over a long period of time. And you're probably not going to tie it up in a longer term maturity. In that case, you would expect the longer term maturities to be higher because money is going to be coming out of them to invest in the economy today. So you'd expect longer-term matur- uh, maturities to have a higher interest rate than the shorter term. What's happening is the opposite, where there isn't that level of optimism in the growth of the economy. And people are saying, look, I'm not so sure about the investment opportunities today in the economy. What I'm going to do is just going to tie my money up for 30 years and just take the rate that they're, that they're offering me. Uh, and why not just buy a short-term, uh, shorter-term instrument and roll that every couple of years? Because I'm not sure that interest rate level will be there when I decide to roll uh, – those those that maturity over so i'd rather just tie it up and just and just take what's on the table one likes the longer term guarantee rather than the uncertainty 
that you'd have to make a new decision in three to five years. And that new decision might not offer as an attractive as an offering as just committing your money for the long term. Exactly, exactly. And I guess that should make sense to us if we're not finance experts, because we have options when we buy homes, right? We can do uh, some, you know, uh, adjustable rate mortgages, or we can lock for a long term or balloon payments, all these things. And, uh, you know, conservative wisdom sometimes is like, it might be just a good idea to kind of lock it in and be settled because sometimes when you take something that uh, is only guaranteed for three or five or seven years, like an adjustable rate mortgage, you can find yourself on the other end getting very surprised. So I guess a lot of this is that human behavior of wanting to remove surprises. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a visual person and uh, this might be too cutesy the way that I that I say it, but kind of what I imagine, I imagine uh, you ever see the people at the gym that take those like really heavy long ropes and they're like swinging them on each side and it's some sort of kind of exercise. Yeah, it's become fashionable. Yeah, <laughs> it's become a fashionable exercise, a trend. So I imagine like this really long rope with somebody standing at the end, like kind of like jerking it up and, and, and it's creating this wave, but, but that wave is shrinking over time and it has less impact on the end of the rope. Does that make sense? So that visual for me makes it feel like, man, the Federal Reserve, they can, they can really jerk and have a lot of power when we're talking about a curve on the short end, but it's very hard to budge or move kind of further along that spectrum. Does that make sense? That's a great visual. Uh, and I, that's exactly what happens is they can do whatever they want in the short term, and as long as they're not doing some sort of crazy quantitative easing where they're buying maturities all along the curve, whether if, if they're doing where, what they're David traditionally – David was calling yield curve control. Right, I think it, he was writing about that for right, some time. Uh, you know, if the Federal Reserve is doing what is traditionally done, which is just focus on the short end, uh, and the long end is set by the market, that's exactly what happens. You have the market looking at things from a different perspective than the Fed is and making its own decisions and not being too susceptible – to the magnitude or the directional movements on the short end. Now, historically, from a performance standpoint, that 30-year treasury letting the U.S. borrow money for 30 years has been a very uh, – I'm just saying on a back-tested format, looking at, at, at historically what it's done, it, it, it obviously has been an attractive risk-reward type investment. And I think a lot of people are curious – if that 30 year would just budge up a little bit more that they, they might have, you know, some sort of an appetite. So one of the things I asked David, if all the action of the central bank doesn't really budge that 30 year, and I've heard it before that the 30 year treasury can be sometimes a proxy of what future growth looks like or inflation expectations or, or kind of whatever you want to conclude. What does it take to beyond uh, intervention, what does it take for the market to really budge that 30 years? Is it only a belief that that we get back to the roaring 20s and we have you know above trendline growth? I, I And uh, I'm looking at David's answer here, and I, and I agree entirely. Uh, and verbatim, what he says is a belief in higher sustainable inflation and a belief in higher sustainable growth. And I think that is how you budge the 30 year is by creating that optimism in the economic future, which means that there are opportunities to invest today, which means that tying your money up over a significantly longer term period is too much uh, of an opportunity cost. So then that leads me to my next question. We hear on financial media all the time, and I'll define this for our listeners, you hear you hear the language of lower for longer, and, and it, it's kind of a, a mantra that basically says, yes, 
I know during the Carter administration that when you bought your first house, you had a 17% mortgage and you had a CD that paid 12%. I'm making up numbers, right? Historically, that's what you felt. But this mantra is just saying, hey, we're in a new regime. Lower for longer means expect lower interest rates for longer. I'm not saying that I agree with it. I'm not saying I define that. I'm saying that is common language in the world of finance. So what I'm asking is to that mantra, should we add flatter for longer? Where, where this idea, again, a yield curve, a curve up would assume that longer interest rates pay higher than shorter term maturities. Should we assume flatter for longer as well? If everything was set by the market, I might, uh, I might ascribe to that. But because the short end of the curve is manipulated, Federal Reserve can steepen out the curve anytime it wants. I mean, if the Fed goes ahead and says it's going to keep things at zero again, you're going to see, I believe you're going to see a steepening of the yield curve. And it, Well, let me cut you off real quick, because me and you were in a text conversation this week, and, and you called the, the yield curve currently a tightrope. Like it was, it's, you would agree it's yes, flat right now. Right now. And they've taken one action of nine or 10 actions that they said they're going to take. Yes. So how are... Is it flat because they said they're going to take eight or nine, ten? When I say okay. actions, I'm saying uh, you can give me definitively what they said. Uh, well, actually, I'll just let you. Um, Powell got on TV and he said that they're going to raise interest rates how many times? Seven uh, by the end of 2022. So are what we see in today a, a full belief that those seven times are going to happen? Um, I, I think you're seeing a full belief that those seven times are going to happen. Got it. In this market environment. Uh, and. If things stay relatively calm, I do think you're going to see uh, tighter or flatter for longer. Um, that being said, if there, you know, a lot of money could pile in in the treasury, depending on uh, uh, certain flight to safety or whatever the case may be, it's very, it's very difficult to predict. But it seems to be sensible that if the current market climate stays constant, uh, you're going to see uh, not so much movement on on the slope of that curve. So you would ascribe to the flatter for longer except for the fact that the intervention will probably uh, solve for that. Exactly. Like what happened in 2019? Uh, and this also gets to the question about inversions and uh, do they predict recessions or are they predictive of market moves or so on? Uh, but we inverted in 2019. And let's define that for our listeners so they know what that means. So uh, the inversion, all that means is the two-year treasury yield is paying a higher yield than the 10-year treasury yield. Another way to say that, if I lend my money to the U.S. government for 10 years, I'm getting a lower interest rate than if I gave them my money for two years. We're calling that an inversion. Go ahead. Right, exactly. So what happened was uh, the Fed, uh, there was a rate hiking cycle from 2015 about 2018. And then in uh, the market sold off significantly in 2018. Uh, there was a bit of market distress uh, and the yield curve uh became slightly inverted in August of 2019, in which case the Federal Reserve then lowered rates. They lowered rates and then the curve steepened out a bit. But and there was a recession six months later. That had nothing to do with interest <laughs> that rates. That had nothing to do with it. And keep in mind also the market was up about 30% in 2019. Uh, the market was up about uh, in 2020 about 15% or so. And then 2021, <laughs> market was up about 30%. So 
if you use infer- inversion as a signal to be scared, uh, you missed out on a lot of returns. Yeah, you you you, uh, uh, you cheat a little bit there looking at things as a, as a one-year time period, right? Because in there you had a little recession caused by COVID. A two-month recession. Yeah, that, yes. <laughs> that was yeah. short-lived. Um, but I think we don't want to move off this point too quickly because everything we could have said so far could be confusing, overhead, whatnot. But here's where I want to protect you as a listener and as an investor. Um the headline articles right now are going to be in your face and they're going to sound something like this. Uninversion, uh, the yield curve inverting, like what we just talked about, means that a recession is coming. And they will give you a little bit of a long time period saying that it's going to come within the next 18 months. So you are going to get this language on financial media that you need to prepare yourself as an investor that is going to say that the monster is lurking around the corner and statistics will show you that that is true. I mean, that's something our, our, our investors are going to have to deal with. Are they not? Uh, I completely agree. And it's if you look at the historical data, it's true. Usually, uh, traditionally, the Fed just – the economy starts to heat up. Uh, labor markets start to tighten. Uh, maybe there's a bit of inflation. Maybe not. And then the Federal Reserve just keeps hiking until something breaks and uh, then there's a recession. And also, I think that uh, if I'm not sure what perspective some of these listeners are coming from, if they're worried about what their portfolio might do in a recession, or they're worried about what their business might do, those can be two very different things. I think most people would think that listening to this podcast would think about their portfolio. And again, anytime somebody comes to you, so like, think about if somebody uh, came to you and said, hey, um, in the last 30 days, there's been three burglaries in your neighborhood. Like, it, you're going to think I should take action. I should start locking my door. I should get a, a video camera. I should do something. You, we are, um, it's innate in us to say if harm is coming and we're warned about it, that we should take action and do something. So these financial articles are going to be like, there's a burglar in your neighborhood. Um, make sure one, you're prepared and two, you're doing something about it. Yes, and uh, and it can make you feel good to take some sort of action. Of course, uh, I, and I totally you understand. Feel like you're getting a deadbolt lock. You feel uh, like you're doing the right thing. I totally understand that impulse, and all all I'm uh, I guess trying to communicate. It's very difficult to position yourself properly because when people hear recessions, if you if you go back, you look at past ten, eleven recessions. It's not necessarily that you get some huge market sell off. Uh, either before or during, or generally speaking, after the market tends to do pretty well. But during, uh, you know, there's some, there's been multiple periods where the market has, uh, the market has done actually relatively well. So it, it, a lot of it depends on what what the market situation is like is coming up to the recession. Uh, you know, if you if you've had a, a significant sell off in a lot of names, uh, it's it's hard to understand exactly what's happening. In the economy is going to uh, have. What, what what kind of effect that's going to have in multiples. A lot of this stuff is reflexive. So I think I would be very careful about making knee-jerk reactions, even if you knew a recession was coming, I guess is what I'm trying to say, which is which is generally hard to say. Uh, I, the National Bureau of Economic Research comes out and will tell you when the recession happened. And usually a year later, they'll tell you when the recession ended or something. Always in hindsight. Makes yeah, sense. always in hindsight. So all that is to say is that if you look at the data and if you look at actual performance of the market during recessions, it's difficult to say. It's usually uh, pretty fat-tailed, uh, but it's definitely not necessarily negative. So and if that's the data you're looking for, you have to, you have to now you're trying to uh, 
study the types of recession, which recessions are really bad and which recessions are garden variety, maybe not so bad. And then it's a bit of a different analysis. Are we allowed to stereotype inversions? Like, should we treat all inversions as a particular signal that means something or are not all inversions created equally? I don't think so at all. And the inversions are one of the things that I think it's not very helpful to me uh, when people say inversions precede recessions because it's at the end of the day, the recession is provoked by just raising the cost of money. And if you raise it enough, eventually you'll reduce the, the amount of credit of the economy and, and the economy will take a hit from that. It, it seems uh, as a, it, it's causal uh, to me, which – we, you know, so I don't really understand why that is, I guess, talked about so much. And it, it, primar- it primarily depends on what the Federal Reserve is going to do. If the Federal Reserve is going to keep raising until something breaks and then lower it with rapidity, then I don't know how things are going to turn out. It's You have an actor that's very much willing to be accommodative uh, in times when there's signs of distress start, start creeping in. So a part of this is – Maybe even if you knew a recession is coming, then you don't. But then you don't really know the second order effects. How's the Fed going to react? How's the market going to react? How's the market already reacted leading up to that? And uh, the analysis, you know, becomes almost too complex to analyze properly. So it's kind of like our listeners are going to have a fork in the road. Like one of two routes are going to go. Either one route is um, that they're going to dive in, learn all the vocabulary, language, understand what questions to ask their advisor so that they can get to an intellectual conclusion on that they're in the right portfolio, the right investments, all that stuff. Or I guess the other fork in the road, um, which leans a lot on intuition, is that they are going to intuitively believe that they have a, a trustworthy advice giver. Um, and they're going to lean into that advice giver and actually take their advice because uh, ultimately one of those two things has to happen to make sure that they don't make decisions that I guess they would regret that are driven by – because one of the things you kind of just did, a, a you kind of blurted out, but you're like, hey, markets did you know this in 2019, this in 2020, this in 2021. And it's interesting when you say that because I'm like, oh, those outcomes were really favorable – but we have a long list of boogeymen and monsters that we could have uh, spoken to that would have frightened somebody out of you know the typical portfolio that they would own. So I, I guess that's the thing is I intuitively have to have uh, somebody who's trustworthy that I that I can lean into to kind of guide me, or I have to do a whole lot of reading um, and, and kind of get myself there intellectually. Yes, and uh, even. The intellectual part of it is there many people who uh, understand the historical events and all that, but actually trying to put it together in a practical sense and make portfolio decisions, I think is a is another kind of leap. Um, all, all that is to say is that uh, it's it, it help, you know we go back to diversification a lot. It, it very much if you're all in equities right now, I would you know be concerned about the level of volatility that you might experience in the next six months to a year, a year and a half. But if you have a diversified portfolio, you're going to have parts of your portfolio doing uh, pretty de- performing decent and in even uh, not great scenarios. So I think that uh, the portfolio construction matters, and this is a great uh, example of, uh, of a great time of why it matters so much. Yeah, and I'll put a bow around this at least with a, a thought that doesn't seem connected, but it, it is connected in my mind. Uh, I talk to a lot of young folks that want to get into our industry. 
And a lot of the time I'll, I'll tell them most of my learning is having conversations with Dave Pranas, uh, is asking David Bonson questions, is uh, reading different financial blogs or, or magazines. Like it, this insatiable curiosity kind of leads to the growth of my acumen. But if you want a recommendation on what degree you should get, I, I might get a psychology degree over a finance <laughs> degree because sure. we learn so much of this, uh, how all these financial actors are, uh, there's some psychology to it. Uh, and, and there's no denying that. Now, I'm, I'm I'm not saying that you know behavioral economics is more important than you know classic economics or anything like that. But uh, when we start to learn the stories, the narratives, the actors, um, kind of what matters, what doesn't matter, we we kind of see, man, there's a lot of psychology in this. Is that a fair way to say it? I think I think that's a that's a great way to say it. It's it's not. Uh, you, I don't know what people think in terms of when they think of somebody who analyzes portfolios and and makes good decisions and i think that the ideal prototype for that type of person is going to be somebody who understands a variety of different fields pretty well and one of those will be psychology one of those will be history uh one of those will be economics one of them will be a little bit of math uh sociology you know so on and so forth so you have to be able to synthesize these different fields uh to come up with an idea of how the markets are going to, how the world is really uh, moving in a sense, and uh, it's it's difficult. And and uh, and I think that uh, as far as people trying to be able to do this on their own, I think that if maybe I, I would go back, almost go back to the Peter Lynch thing when when people try to ask ask me about what should I do with markets, I, I literally tell them if you have a very long term view uh, and you just pick stocks that you like. Um, you know, along with maybe some ETFs or something, I think that's pretty much the best. Uh, I think the best most people are are going to be able to do. So, um, yeah, I think that it's not necessarily you have to have a degree or some sort of formal education to be able to understand this stuff. Uh, some of the the best, um, you know, traders or uh, or investors out there don't have some of those uh, backgrounds, uh, th- those formal backgrounds that people might think. So. Uh, there, there is no, uh, I think, rhyme or reason to what constitutes the uh, right type of background to to be a good uh, investor. And luckily, uh, nobody has to lean on Peter Lynch's advice because we will invite them to resource an advisor to kind of be their safari guide and uh, direct them through that. Um, but yeah, uh, interesting stuff. That that psychology part that I kind of. Uh, stop and meditate on is because there's so many questions to peel back when we talk about this stuff that if Jerome Powell does X and the market reacts Y, then how would the Federal Reserve react? And then how would the market react to the Federal Reserve? And you see these layers and layers uh, where it becomes harder and harder to predict outcomes because if any of the wrong assumptions in that sequence of thoughts uh, is wrong, then it has uh, you know a- an impact on everything else. So. Totally. And just to add to that, I think Trevor made a great point. And a huge part of this is uh, I think that uh, in my personal opinion, uh, you need to have a high degree of intellectual confidence but also an even higher degree of humility, maybe 70% humility and 30% intellectual confidence to make good decisions because you have to know at some point, uh, no matter how sophisticated your analysis, you think your analysis is, it's no longer helpful. And you have to realize when a situation is unanalyzable and then position your portfolio to how, how you don't know the world is going to unfold. 
So yeah, I like I mean, how Warren Buffett says it. I, I'll, I'll butcher it, but I'll paraphrase a quote where basically he's saying, you know, uh, if you break down a great investor, you'll probably find higher levels of temperament than IQ. Um, I would agree. And uh, it's a huge part, huge part of investing. Uh, it, it's what we seek to do is to to give you, you know, a taste of education, a, a taste of a dialogue, but then also a humility of understanding. As we joked earlier, that uh, nobody listening. And nobody in this discussion that you're listening to uh, has a, a full, clear view of what the future is going to be. Uh, and if we do, if we have the crystal ball, man, we'd be excellent investors. <laughs> um, so we will kind of wrap it up there. We'll ask that you rate the podcast uh, five stars or preferred leave comments. Uh, you're welcome to. Uh, an easy way to contact us when we talk about subjects that can potentially be confusing, you can email us at tom at thebonsongroup.com. Very easy to remember, T-O-M at thebonsongroup.com. Uh, this is definitely a topic that deserves questions. Uh, you can resource us. We'd have, love to have conversations. Um, and of course, we'll be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.